Um, my favorite book to read aloud at Christmas time is uh, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever by Barbara Robinson. I've read it over the years when I was a teacher to my uh, elementary and middle school students, and I've read it to my older grandchildren. We're working our way through it with the younger grandchildren uh, this year. And uh, it's the tale of the horrible Herdmans, the absolutely worst children in the history of the whole world. They were just so all around awful. You could hardly believe they were real. Ralph, Imogene, Leroy, Claude, Ollie, and Gladys. Six skinny, stringy haired kids, all alike, except for being different sizes and having different black and blue places where they had clunked each other. They lived over a garage at the bottom of Sproul Hill. Nobody used the garage anymore, but the Herdmans used to bang the door up and down just as fast as they could to try to squash one another. That was their idea of a game. Where other people had grass in their front yard, the Herdmans had rocks. Where other people had hydrangea bushes, the Herdmans had poison ivy. There was also a sign in the yard that said, beware of the cat. New kids always laughed about that till they got a look at the cat. It was the meanest looking animal I ever saw. It had one short leg and a broken tail and one missing eye and the mailman wouldn't deliver anything to the Herdmans because of it. And then the book goes on to delightfully share uh, this story about how the horrible Herdmans who have never been to church and have never heard the Christmas story get wind of the Sunday school pageant and decide to stage a takeover of the whole thing, including all the main roles. And along the way, they nearly burn down the church, smoking cigars in the bathroom. They are scandalized when they hear that nobody had room for baby Jesus. And they question, what kind of cheap king hands out oil for a present anyway? It is a fantastic story. I highly recommend that you grab a copy, read it, maybe read it to your own children or grandchildren. Uh, But what I want you to hear today is what happens on the night of the actual pageant. Our narrator normally stars in the pageant. Her best friend, Alice Wendelkin, is usually the perfect Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the narrator's mother has gotten wrangled into directing the pageant this year because the usual director quit. So listen as I share with you what happened at the best Christmas pageant ever. On the night of the pageant, We didn't have any supper because mother forgot to fix it. My father said that was all right. Between Mrs. Armstrong's telephone calls, she's the over-controlling former director of the pageant, and the pageant rehearsals, he didn't expect supper anymore. When it's all over, he said, we'll go someplace and have hamburgers. But mother said when it was all over, she may go someplace and hide. We've never once gone through the whole thing, she said. I don't know what's going to happen. It may be the first Christmas pageant in history where Joseph and the wise men get in a fight and Mary runs away with the baby. She might be right, I thought, and I wondered what all of us in the angel choir ought to do in case that happened. It would be dumb for us just to stand there singing about the holy infant if Mary had just run off with them. But nothing seemed very different at first. There was the usual big mess all over the place, baby angels getting poked in the eye by other baby angels' wings and grumpy shepherds stumbling over their bathrobes. The spotlight swooped back and forth and up and down and it, so that it made you sick to your stomach to look at it. And as usual, whoever played the piano pitched away in a manger so high we could hardly hear it, much less sing it. My father always says away in a manger starts out sounding like a closet full of mice. But everything settled down. And at 7.30, the pageant began. 
While we sang away in a manger, the ushers lit candles all around the church, and the spotlight came on to be the star. So you really had to know the words to away in a manger because you couldn't see anything, not even Alice Wendelkin's Vaseline eyelids. After that, we sang two verses of O Little Town of Bethlehem, and then we were supposed to hum some more O Little Town of Bethlehem while Mary and Joseph came in from a side door, only they didn't come right away. So we hummed and hummed and hummed, which is boring and also very hard. And before long, doesn't sound like any song at all, more like an old refrigerator. I knew something like this would happen, Alice Wendell whispered to me. They didn't come at all. We won't have a Mary and Joseph. What are we supposed to do? I guess we would have gone on humming till we all turned blue, but we didn't have to. Ralph and Imogene were there all right, only for once. They didn't come through the door pushing each other out of the way. They just stood there for a minute as if they weren't sure they were in the right place. Because of the candles, I guess, and the whole church was full of people. They looked like the people you see on the 6 o'clock news, refugees, sent to wait in some strange, ugly place with all their boxes and sacks around them. And it suddenly occurred to me that this was just the way it must have been for the real Holy Family, stuck away in a barn by people who didn't much care what happened to them. They couldn't have been very neat and tidy either, but more like this Mary and Joseph. Imogene's veil was cockeyed as usual, and Ralph's hair stuck out all around his ears. Imogen had the baby doll, but she wasn't carrying the way she was supposed to, cradled in her arms. She had it slung up over her shoulder, and before she put it in the manger, she thumped him twice on the back. I heard Alice gasp, and she poked me. I don't think it's very nice to burp the baby Jesus, she said, as if he had colic. And then she poked me again. Do you suppose he could have had colic? And I said, well, I don't know why not, and I didn't. I mean, he could have had colic or been fussy or hungry like any other baby. After all, that was the whole point of Jesus. He didn't come down on a cloud like something out of Amazing Comics, but he was born and lived a real person. Right away, we had to sing while shepherds watched their flocks by night, and we had to sing very loud because there were more shepherds than there were anything else, and they made so much noise, banging their crooks around like a lot of hockey sticks. Next came Gladys from behind the angel choir, pushing people out of the way and stepping on everyone's feet. Since Gladys was the only one in the pageant who had anything to say, she made the most of it. Hey, unto you a child is born, she hollered, as if it was, for sure, the best news in the world. And all the shepherds trembled, sore afraid, mostly of Gladys, but it looked good anyway. And then came three carols about angels. It took that long to get all the angels in because they were primary kids and they got nervous and cried and forgot where they were supposed to go. And they bent their wings in the door and things like that. We got a little rest then while the boys sang We Three Kings of Orient Are and everyone in the audience shifted to watch the wise men march up the aisle. What have they got? Alice whispered. I didn't know, but whatever it was, it was heavy. Leroy almost dropped it. He didn't have his frankincense jar either. And Claude and Ollie, they didn't have anything they were supposed to bring the gold and the myrrh. I knew this would happen, Alice said for the second time. I bet it's something awful. Like what? Like a burnt offering or something. You know the herdmans, well, they did burn things, but they hadn't burned this yet. It was a ham. And right away, I knew where it came from. My father was on the church's charitable works committee, and they give away food baskets at Christmas, and this was the herdman's food basket ham. It still had the ribbon around it saying, Merry Christmas. I'll bet they stole that, Alice said. They did not. It came from their food basket, and if they want to give away their own ham, I guess they can do it. But even if the Herdmans didn't like him, which was Alice's next idea, they had never before in their lives given away anything except lumps on the head. You had to be impressed. 
Leroy dropped the ham in front of the manger. It looked kind of funny to see a ham there instead of the fancy bath salts jars we used for myrrh and frankincense. And then they went and sat down in the only place left. While we sang, what child is this? The wise men were supposed to confer among themselves and go out a different door so everyone would understand that they were going home another way. But the herdmen forgot or they didn't want to because they didn't confer and they didn't leave. They just sat there and there was nothing anybody could do about it. They're running the whole thing, Alice whispered. But they weren't at all. As a matter of fact, it made perfect sense for the wise men to sit down and rest. And I said so. They're supposed to have come a long way. You wouldn't expect them to just show up and head over the ham and leave. As for ruining the whole thing, it seemed to me that the herdmans had improved the pageant a lot just by doing what came naturally, like burping the baby, for instance, or thinking a ham would make a better present than a lot of perfumed oil. Usually by the time we got to Silent Night, which was always the last carol, I was fed up with the whole thing and couldn't wait for it to be over. But I didn't feel that way this time. I almost wished the pageant could go on with the Herbins in charge just to see what else they would do that was different. Maybe the wise men would tell Mary about their problem with Herod and she would tell them to go back and lie their heads off. Or Joseph might go with them and get rid of Herod once and for all. Or Joseph and Mary might ask the wise men to take the Christ child with them, figuring nobody would think to look there. I was so busy planning new ways to save the baby Jesus, I missed the beginning of Silent Night. But it was all right because everybody sang Silent Night, including the audience. We sang all the verses. And when we got to Son of God loves pure light, I happened to look at Imogene. And I almost dropped my hymn book on a baby angel. Everyone had been waiting all this time for the Hermans to do something absolutely unexpected. And sure enough, that's what happened. Imogene Herdman was crying in the candlelight. Her face was all shiny with tears and she didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just sat there, awful old Imogene, in her crookedy veil, crying and crying and crying. Well... It was the best Christmas pageant we ever had. Everybody said so. Nobody seemed to know why. When it was over, people stood around the church lobby just talking about what was different this year. There was something special, they said. They just couldn't put their finger on it. Mrs. Wendelkin said, well, Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a black eye, and that was something special, but only what you would expect. She meant it was the most natural thing in the world for a herdman to have a black eye, but actually nobody hit Imogene, and she didn't hit anyone else. Her eye wasn't really black either. It was just all puffy and swollen because she walked into the corner of the choir robe cabinet in a kind of daze, as if she had just caught on to the idea of God and the wonder of Christmas. And this was the funny thing about it all. For years, I'd thought about the wonder of Christmas and the mystery of Jesus' birth and never really understood it. But now, because of the herdman. It didn't seem so mysterious after all. When Imogene had asked me what the pageant was about, I had told her it was about Jesus, but that was just part of it. It was about a new baby and his mother and father who were in a lot of trouble with no money and no place to go and no doctor and nobody they knew. And then arriving from the east like my uncle from New Jersey, rich friends. But Imogene, I guess, didn't see it that way. Christmas just came over her all at once, like a case of chills and fever. And so she was crying and walking into the furniture. And afterward, there were candy canes and little tiny testaments for everyone and a poinsettia plant for my mother from the whole Sunday school. And we put the costumes away and we folded up the collapsible manger. And just before we left, my father snuffed out the last of the tall white candles. I guess that's everything, he said, as we stood at the back of the church. All over now. It was quite a pageant. And then he looked at my mother. What's that you've got? 
it's the ham, she said. They wouldn't take it back. They wouldn't take any candy either or any of the little Bibles. But Imogene did ask me for a set of the Bible story pictures, and she took out the Mary picture, and she said it was exactly right, whatever that means. I think it meant that no matter how she herself was, Imogene liked the idea of the Mary in the picture, all pink and white and pure looking, as if she never washed the dishes or cooked supper or did anything except have baby Jesus on Christmas. But as far as I'm concerned, Mary is always going to look a lot like Imogene Herdman, sort of nervous and bewildered, but ready to clobber anybody who laid a hand on her baby. And the wise men are always going to be Leroy and his brothers bearing ham. When we came out of the church that night, it was cold and clear with crunchy snow underfoot and bright, bright stars overhead. And I thought about the angel of the Lord, Gladys, with her skinny legs and her dirty sneakers sticking out from under her robe, yelling at all of us everywhere, Hey, unto you a child is born. That is the story of the best Christmas pageant ever. You see, I think that what's happened is that the Christmas story over 2,100 years has become pretty safe and predictable and cozy and comfortable. And we've all heard it so often, most of us are not shocked by it anymore the way the Herdmans were or the way those players in the first century were. And so I want to remind us today of some good news as we head into our Christmas celebrations. From the cradle to the cross, our faith is grounded in the scandalous story of a God who dives into our mess to love us at any cost. To live in such shocking love is to give it to others as well. Friends, listen, the Christmas story is a shocking story. The first century Jews They thought their Messiah was going to be born like a king, wealth, power, a palace, surrounded by the holy men of Israel. He doesn't come like that at all. He's born in a barn to a teenage mother, out of wedlock, lives with that stigma his whole life. His own holy men ignore him. And so some pagan astrologers from afar come to be near him. His parents end up being immigrants on the run. His childhood is anything but safe and secure. He grows up and he likes to hang out with all of the unsavory types in town. He goes to parties where there are prostitutes and notorious sinners. And the religious establishment doesn't want to be with him. They don't celebrate him. They want to eliminate him. He doesn't live as a conquering king and die a hero's death on the battlefield. He lives as a suffering servant and he dies a God-forsaken criminal on a cross. Nobody expected any of this story to happen. But our faith is grounded in the scandalous story of a God who dives into our mess to love us at any cost. And to live in that shocking love is to give it to others as well. The Christmas story is a shocking story. The Christmas story reveals God's heart to us. See, religion says that God is so holy he can't bear to look on our sin. Christmas says God comes to meet us in our mess. Amen? Religion says you better clean up your mess in order to come to God. And Christmas says God will come and show us the way out of the mess and rescue us from it. Religion says once we're clean, God will embrace us. And Christmas says, why don't you come let God embrace you and he'll transform you. Isn't that a game changer? We have not always known what God is like, my friend, but now we do. 
It turns out that God is just like Jesus, and he's always been like Jesus. Jesus, who's born and lives and dies in utter humility, who comes to be one of us and to be with us. He does not call us out of the world. He comes into our world. He doesn't look away from our sin. He becomes our sin. This is good news, friends. From the cradle to the cross, our story, our faith is a scandalous story of a God who will at any cost come and be among us to love us. And when we begin to live in that shocking love, we will give that love to other people as well. This Christmas story is our story. The whole point of Christmas is that we would be as bowled over by God's love as Imogene Herdman. Let me say that again. The whole point of Christmas is that we would be as bowled over by God's love as Imogene Herdman. That we might even tear up occasionally to God who would love us this much, a God who would love us this much. Amen? Maybe we'd even give away something that we ourselves need, like a ham. Because once you've begun to live in that kind of love, you just want to give that kind of love to other people, you know? We may want to yell it at somebody, everybody, everywhere. Hey, unto you a child is born. The Christmas story. I want you to remember today, tomorrow, maybe if you celebrate the 12 days of Christmas, you've got a good piece of Christmas yet to come. I want you to remember every day that this is not a safe and secure, comfortable and cozy story. This is a dangerous, life-threatening rescue story. This is a love story for the ages where the lovers have to put everything on the line. This is a shocking story. This story turned religion on its head. It is scandalous. And if there was ever any doubt in your mind, I hope Christmas puts it to rest forever. God loves you this much, and there's nothing you could do or be that would put you beyond the reach of God's love. And that is good news. Amen? Such good news. From the cradle to the cross, our faith is grounded in a scandalous story of a God who dives into our mess to love us at any cost. And when we learn to live in that love, we want to give that love away. It's a shocking love. I grew up hearing the Christmas story like many of you. As a kid, I understood something about the fact that it included me. Even as a child in elementary school, I began to love God back. I understood that this love was for Brian. It took until my mid-20s for me to fully embrace that God's love was just as shocking as it sounds. I was driving home after work. I was teaching here in Fredericktown. I was driving home after school one day. And I'd been wrestling with this good news for better than 10 years, maybe 12 years. And for some reason, on that particular day, I decided that I was going to surrender to this good news, that there was nothing that could put me outside of God's love, and I was just going to start living like it was true. And maybe it was because that had been pent up in me for so long, I don't know, but I began to weep in my car to the point that I had to pull the car over on the side of the road. I felt like my heart was flooded with joy to the world and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So much so, I couldn't keep it all in. Now, as I've gotten older, I've discovered that life in God's love is simply choosing to surrender to him every single day, like that, moment by moment, believing like it really could be true, that he loves me that much. And it has not always been accompanied by tears, but I can tell you this, it has been accompanied by more love and more joy and more peace and more kindness and goodness and gentleness than I ever imagined. This Christmas Eve, I'm thinking of the one in 1906. Reginald Fessenden was experimenting combining the telegraph with a crude kind of microphone 
And as he did, he began reading, it was Christmas Eve after all, the account of Jesus' birth from Luke chapter 2 that I read to you a few minutes ago. And telegraph operators aboard ships and around the nation were shocked to hear all of a sudden coming out of their speakers that normally just gave them a tap, 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 tap sound, a man's voice reading the Christmas story. It was the very first radio broadcast, and it shocked the audience. And when he finished reading the story, he picked up his nearby violin, and he began playing the haunting strains of O Holy Night, the very first song played on the radio, and my favorite carol. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and air pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And I wonder what it would look like for us to respond to, to surrender to the shocking story of a God who dives into our mess to love us at any cost. What would it be like if this Christmas your soul genuinely felt its worth? That's the scandal of the real Christmas story.